Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to find daily joy, peace, and contentment. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide pathways for improving emotional and mental well-being. However, none of the education and information should be taken as direct therapeutic suggestion or advice. In other words, your medical doctor or mental health professional is your best bet if you have specific concerns. Also on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds and interests, and they may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing from the world's leading experts in mental well-being. We're grateful that you're here and hope that the information discussed helps you on your journey. Welcome to the show. All right, so Dr. Hill, I want to kick us off with a little bit of a banger here, which is what is the number one tip or piece of advice that you might give for helping people to become more present and aware throughout the day? Well, I think one of the places where people are least aware is in their inner world. So one tip that I often will work with people on is is something called one eye out and one eye in. Oftentimes we have our eyes out. We have two eyes out. And we are engaging with all the tasks and to-dos and we miss out on what's happening inside. So inside, when we turn one eye in, you have all sorts of things happening. You have your, the homeostasis of your body that's telling you things like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, uh, I hurt my posture, right? Our interoceptive awareness that many of us have lost touch with. But we also have inner knowings, inner inklings, inner sort of based on our experience that we check out from. So I would encourage folks to practice one eye in. And you can practice one eye in with your eyes open just by turning your eyes, one eye inside. What's, what am I feeling? What am I sensing? What do I need in this moment? And, and it only takes a, f- a few minutes. You can do it in line at the grocery store. Uh, you can do it while you're working, even while you're in conversation while I'm in conversation with you, I can still have one eye in and into what's happening in my inner world. And then I can toggle back out again. So I would practice one eye in, one eye out. I like that. I I think it's so easy sometimes for us to become ensnared with everything else other than what's going on within the context of our internal experience. And so having a method or a mode to pull us into our inner experience, I think is really important. Why do you think so many people disconnect from their inner experience? Like why, why is it self-protective? Is it self-preserving? Why do we disconnect? Well, I never think it's one thing, right? It's usually a complicated, um, multiple, multifaceted thing. So there's one, which is... uh, there's so much that's pulling us out of our inner experience, right? So everything from even just our our Apple watches that tell us when to breathe instead of our own bodies that could tell us when to breathe, right? So there's a lot that's pulling our attention away, grabbing our attention, uh, making us think that there's something better out there in the future than here right now. But also, you know, evolutionarily, we were designed to avoid, you know, avoid discomfort and to fix discomfort. And so when something is uncomfortable inside of us, we experientially avoid it. We either numb out from it, we distract ourselves from it, we try and fix it. And we have lost the capacity or we don't have the capacity to just be with it. 
to be with what's here and now. And that's actually a, it's a skill. It's, it's something, it's like a muscle that we need to learn how to build, how to, when I have anxiety that shows up, how to be present with anxiety, make more room for the anxiety, notice where it is in my body, maybe take like a, a Sharpie in my mind and circle around the edges of it and color in the parts that are the most intense, that I'm bringing curiosity to anxiety as opposed to what many of us are trained and habituated to do, which is anxiety shows up. And so I look for something to take to get rid of it, or I try and distract myself from it, or I try and think positive thoughts to try and uh, not think about that thing that I'm anxious about. And when I do that, I am actually weakening my capacity to be with discomfort. And what we know is that the things that are most important to us in our life, the things that make us, that wake us up in the middle of the night, are often the things um, that they're related, right? So you're not waking up in the middle of the night worrying about your bowling game. You're worrying about your kid or your partner or the the planet, <laughs> what's happening, you know, or what some work thing that you care about. So we need to be able to increase our capacity to be with discomfort. And everything is pulling us away from that. Yeah, there's a great book that I read. It was probably a few years ago now. It was called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Have you read that by a chance? Mm -mm. It's a really fascinating book because it talks about how there is just this kind of, especially it's talking more about domestic American culture, about how we have really moved away from this notion of sitting with and experiencing discomfort. Um, it has been kind of like the thing that we continuously try to avoid because we have the luxury almost of never having to be outside of any level of discomfort. I mean, if we, you look around, I mean, um, I have all these lights around me. It's air conditioned. It feels great because here, you know, today it's going to be, you know, in the 90s. And so uh, I can kind of just sit and be in my own place and be comfortable as much as I want to. And the same thing kind of goes internally as well. Like there, I feel like sometimes thoughts can pop up so often. These things can try to move me away from kind of my goal. And a lot of times it just feels like, well, the easiest thing to do is to just push it away. Say, I'm not going to deal with it. Like it's not comfortable for me to like deal with my stress, my anxiety, my sadness, my anger, my frustration. I'm just going to push it to the side and keep driving forward. Be a, be a big boy about this. Uh, but there are some penalties that I pay for that. And I think that a lot of people don't recognize how much that can compound over time. If I'm constantly trying to avoid all of the discomfort. And so one thing that you said, Dr. Hill, that I'm really curious about um, is this notion that like we've, we, we've almost kind of learned to be uh, somewhat uh, avoidant, um, learned to not be maybe necessarily as mindful. So does that mean inherently, like organically, when we're born, we are more mindful beings? And then over time, we are either the, the behavior is modeled or something else happens that directs us away from being more present and mindful. What's your take on that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So if you watch a, you know, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, try and take your three-year-old on a hike. <laughs> it's really hard to get anywhere because they're looking at every single little stick and flower and they're way more in the hike than you are when you're trying to get to the, you know, the peak. We're always trying to get to the summit of something yeah. and kids aren't in that mode. The summit is now because the, there is so much here and now that's amazing. So many wonders in the present moment. And yes, we, we lose that out of, out of over time. 
We lose it in our school system. We lose it even at our dinner table. You know, we we sit down at the dinner table with our family and we're asking the kids about, tell me about what you did today. Tell me about, and the kid is like just in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. They're not about what I did today or what I'm planning for tomorrow. I'm just, I'm just here. So it is a, uh, it is something that we can train ourselves back to. You know, I've been practicing in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, for the past 20 years. And I, for the past last summer, well, 20 years ago, I went to his uh, monastery in France, Plum Village, and was able to sit with him and learn from him. And this last summer, I took, I took my family back and we're going about to go again to the monastery. And what we do there, every single hour, there's a bell that rings mm-hmm. that tells you to stop, get present, be aware of what's happening in the here and now. And these are folks that are practicing this all day long, but they still need those bells. So we all need reminders right. to get present. I would say that as children, we need fewer reminders. So our children can be great teachers. And if we pause and actually start to question, like, how many times when I'm talking to my kid, Am I t- telling them to do something that's off in the future? Am I giving some kind of directive? How many times when I'm talking to my kid, am I asking about something you know in the past? And then how many times I'm actually just being present with my kid? And those that you'll see there's way more of the telling your kid to do something or talking about the past than you are just being present. And being present is is where it's at. It's where the magic is because your kids are never going to be this young again. And right. they are, they're wise little beings. So That's true. So do you think that when we are always asking them about something that's more future oriented, are we then kind of starting to model that behavior to them to not be present in the moment? And that's where they begin to pick up on those things. And the next thing we know, now our kids are becoming a little bit more on autopilot. Now they're becoming a little bit, I'll use the word mindless as, as I can be plenty of times. Uh, is that maybe kind of one of the change agents compounded with like experience of stress and anxiety and other things that have to do with daily life and living. Yeah, that and and uh, going in the grocery store and giving your kid an iPad <laughs> while you right. grocery while you grocery shop, right? You're telling your kid there isn't anything in this grocery store that to look at mm. uh, or to have a conversation about about. There's plenty in a grocery store to have a conversation about with your kids. There you know, when my kids were little little, I'd pull them out of the cart and I'd give them jobs. I'd be like, "You're on carrots, you're on apples. Go." <laughs> Go get three apples. Go get a bag of carrots. I'll see you back here. And and that's you know it's, it takes a lot more effort. Sure, it's a lot easier. But this is what we're doing to ourselves, right? That that's the comfort paradox. The things that are making us more comfortable actually make us more vulnerable to discomfort. Mm. Because you know I um I'm good friends with uh, biomechanist Katie Bowman. She she's part of this whole movement called nutritious movement. And she's all about, you know, seeking out physical discomfort, things like going barefoot and uh, sitting, I'm sitting on the floor right now, instead of sitting on the couch behind me. Because when I sit on the floor, I have to use my own spine to hold me up. Mm-hmm. Right. And I can change my positioning throughout the, the hour. So therefore, I'm doing a lot of different kind of yoga type of positions. So that fast forward, when I'm 70 years old, I'll be able to get down on the floor with my grandkids, yeah. right? Because yeah. when I sit on the couch, I'm outsourcing all of those muscles to the couch. It's a lot, not as comfortable to sit on the floor, but it does help me 
in the future. And the same is true with our psychology. Often the things that are a little bit uncomfortable, like that sort of behavioral stretching, there's a, a researcher um, at Stanford, Jeffrey Cohen, who, who does research on behavioral stretching, like assigning people, okay, for the next 10 days, do something that's on the edge of your comfort zone. The mm. folks that go into the the study that had lower levels of happiness, lower moods, actually have greater benefit from doing things outside of their comfort zone for 10 days than, than folks that were feeling okay going in. So even if you feel terrible, doing something that's on the edge of your comfort zone will help you. It'll, it'll, it's actually kind of a, boo a mood boost, but it also prepares you for the future in lots of different ways. Yeah, I resonate a lot with that. And on the show, we talk a lot about this concept of hormetic stress and how we can actually induce stress that we know can benefit us in the long run. I mean, that's what exercise is, right? So we will do something that's uncomfortable, that stresses the body, but helps us to build back bigger, faster, stronger. Uh, there's many other ways that we can do this as well. I see sometimes, especially when I first started practicing mindfulness and meditation, it acted almost like a hormetic stressor to me. Like when I would do it, it's like it was very uncomfortable. I didn't like sitting with my thoughts. I didn't like sitting with just me because all of these things would creep in. And I'm like, well, I, I could, this could be a lot easier if I just go distract myself and go for a walk and, or a run and just like not think about thinking. And so for me, I would, I would kind of just revert back to that. But then the more and more I practice and built that muscle up, I actually found it to be and still continue to find it to be a very effective strategy uh, for helping me just to be. And sometimes just being is the goal um, with, without any other intent necessarily. So I, that resonates a lot with me. What do you say to somebody who kind of has that same experience that I did when I first started practicing mindfulness? And that it, for me, it was just such a awful distraction. And I wanted to avoid all of the pain and difficulty of sitting with myself. If someone kind of uh, comes into you and says, I, I just can't take it. Like me sitting in my own head and being mindful, it feels almost impossible. Do you have like a, a, a maybe another starting place or a conversation that you have with that individual? Well, mindfulness is always mindfulness of something. So when we, when we talk about practicing mindfulness, well, what are you being mindful of, right? So, so we can practice being mindful of our breath or being mindful of our thoughts when we're in meditation. We can be practice of being in the practice of just being mindful of space or mindful of sounds. But we can also practice mindfulness when walking is a form of meditation. There's, there's a walking meditation, eating meditation, uh, sitting meditation, lying down meditation, right? So we can practice it. If, if it's uncomfortable for you to sit and, and, you know, it feels like a little too advanced to sit there with, you know, being aware of your thoughts or for some people with anxiety, being aware of their breath is actually contraindicated. It's not mm -hmm. helpful for them to focus on their breath. Then I would recommend going for a walk and maybe we even change, change the word to, to being curious to having to having open eyes, open ears, open like smelling, feeling just like that three-year-old going on a hike and practicing for the first five minutes of your walk, being mindful. Mm. And then you're 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 doing the practice of getting present. And then you could bring that, you could bring that same quality into your seated meditation if you want to choose to make that a seated meditation of what do you hear, what do you smell, what do you feel? What's it like in your body? Being mindful of just your experience. And then you can, if you want, 
start to practice focusing the mind because it, it can be helpful to learn how to focus your mind on something. Like I'm focusing on my breath or mm -hmm. I'm focusing on a mantra, whatever you choose. I think that there's a, there's, it's almost like we take the, the Western competitive individualistic mindset and we take it to meditation and mm. we start to think that meditation is something like, I'm just going to get something out of this and I'm, I'm here to achieve something right. and our ego and our self and all of that gets swooped in to the experience. Yeah. That's part of the, that's part of the problem. So you could notice that too. Yeah. It's so easy to start becoming judgmental about yourself, not completing the task correctly. Or maybe we set the intention that this meditation is going to be one that I do with the intent of relaxing. And when people come in with that intention, while it's all good intent, uh, one of the things that I think can happen is that we start to see things as, as binary. And we say that this was either effective and it worked or it did not work. And if it did not work, well, what did I do wrong? Um, why, why did I fail at that? And that's a very, I would say probably more Westernized way of thinking, but I think that's naturally what occurs if we tend to be high performers, especially, or just naturally anxious or have performance anxiety. Uh, we naturally have that inclination and there can be all of this judgment. And so one concept that you talk about a lot is this idea of being non-judgmental, but also self-compassion and working with compassion. So I'm curious, maybe we should start to, to establish the base by just explaining what is self-compassion? Well, there's been lots of different definitions of it. Compassion itself has two wings to it. One is to turn towards pain or suffering or discomfort. And the second wing is to offer help. So we can think about that when we're having compassion for another person, somebody, you know, your kid skins their knee, you go to them and you sit with them and you say, hey, what happened? You're present with whatever happened. And then you say, how can I be helpful to you? Or maybe you just even know that being helpful to them would be to give them a hug. Self-compassion is when we do that for ourselves. We turn towards our own pain and difficulty. So it's different than self-care. Self-care mm -hmm. is just caring for yourself, like brushing your teeth, getting massages, getting taking bubble baths, whatever that is, taking care of your finances. But self-compassion is turning towards the uncomfortable parts, the painful parts, the sad parts, the angry parts, the parts that you sometimes are embarrassed of, and offering them care, offering them kindness, offering them forgiveness. And it is a, a flow because when we begin to practice that for ourselves, we may have more capacity to practice it for others. Or sometimes if it's really hard to do that for ourselves, we can remember times when other people were compassionate towards us, that feeling of compassion, and then maybe we can offer it to ourselves. Hmm. So there's um, lots of different research-based, you know, Kristen Neff has done a ton of stuff with Christopher Germer. Uh, Paul Gilbert has done a, t a lot of work on the flow of compassion. And the very simple practice is just to notice when you are hurting and say, hello, hi, I see you and I'm here for you. It's very simple. Yeah. It sounds simple in theory. I would agree that it was, it is simple. I think that so much, so, so many times as a psychologist, I experience or have someone who's experiencing 
uh, so much hate towards themselves um, because of many different things, right? Um, it could it could be related to trauma. It could be related to, I mean, just a wide array of things. And it feels almost impossible for them to engage in self-compassion. And even for them, sometimes their mindset can't even go to a, a time where they can think about like giving themselves, like their younger selves, some sense of compassion or someone else. It's like they feel so disconnected from it because of all of the anger and frustration and all of that, all of their junk that's just like they're stuck in. So when you find someone who is just having what almost seems to have be an impossible time being self self compassionate, what do we what do we do with that? Like it, like it, it feels like sometimes it's almost like I'm at a stopgap and and I can't do anything. I can't get across this barrier. What might you recommend somebody like if they're like, yeah, I, I'm just at a place where I absolutely hate myself, and the thought of giving any level of forgiveness to others or to myself just feels like an impossibility. Yeah, well, I would start with let's let's identify that. Let's get mindful of that. The part of you, because it's a part of you. It's not all of you. There's a part of you that that hates yourself. So where where do you feel that in your body? That part of you that hates yourself. If you were to take that Sharpie and circle it, where would it be? What color would it be? How intense is it? Does it have a weight to it? Does it get stronger in certain contexts and weaker in other contexts? Let's just get curious about that part of you that hates yourself. And by doing that, we're starting the first step of self-compassion, which is being mindful and being with that which is, um, you know, hurting. Then we could also ask, like, why do you why do you think that part of you is there? And this is kind of getting into some internal family systems. And he, Richard Swartz is on my mind because I'm interviewing him on Tuesday, so I'm kind of thinking <laughs> about this parts work. But nice. why do you think that's there? What is the function of that part of you that hurt that hates yourself? Because I imagine it showed up. What age do you think it showed up at? And I imagine it showed up for a reason that maybe it's a protector in some way. It's the, it showed up to uh, maybe keep you safe from other people's uh, judgment of you. Maybe you needed it at certain times. And, and by even doing that, even getting curious and approaching and having a non-judgmental stance to the part of you that's judgmental is compassion. That's compassion. And so it may not be that you think that you're doing self-compassion or you think, but, but you already are just by being able to sit with something yeah. that's uncomfortable. Yeah, there's natural stepping stones. I, I think that if we have the notion or have the belief that people can just jump into automatic self-compassion practice or forgiveness practice kind of at its highest level, uh, and we think about that personally, then we might be pretty deeply disappointed when we try it and then feel like we're met with just like total resistance. Um, so as a psychologist or practitioner, yeah, but also someone who's actually practicing it myself or, or anyone else who's listening. So I think like identifying these kind of small stepping stones is really important and really valuable. I'm curious if we link and tie this in with kind of the concept, uh, and especially when I refer to LinkedIn, I'm talking about the idea of self-compassion with being more mindful and more present. But also too, you talk a lot about this concept and act or acceptance and commitment therapy talks a lot about this concept of psychological flexibility. Number one, how do these interplay? Or maybe we should number one say, what is psychological flexibility? And how does self-compassion and mindfulness interconnect with psychological flexibility? 
Yeah. So psychological flexibility is your capacity to stay present, open, and engaged with what you care about, even when obstacles arise. So it's it's me in the kitchen with my husband, and we're getting into something. It's late at night. We're tired. We're both in our self-righteousness. And then you pause. You're able to take the other person's perspective. You ground yourself in the present moment. You remember that you actually love this person at some point in time, even though you don't feel like it right now. And then you act on your values of what type of partner do I want to be? And can I be that type of partner right now? If I'm able to do that, I'm darn psychologically flexible, right? Right. So psychological flexibility is is knowing what your values are and being able to apply those in in your life in the difficult moments. Where self-compassion comes in is it's, it's sort of like a big umbrella. And all sorts of folks have different ideas around this. So Dennis Hirsch, who's one of the big ACT people, when he was the president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, he wanted to make a seventh process called compassion, which is like an add in another component. Uh, right. Whereas folks like Stephen Hayes, who's the founder of ACT, says, you know what? Compassion is built into every single one of these processes. It's built into being present. It's built into acceptance. It's built into perspective taking. It's built into values. That if you actually boil down most people's values, it comes down to love. Being right. loving is on most people's list of values. And that's what compassion and, and self-compassion is about. So self-compassion helps us be psychologically flexible. In that moment when I'm fighting with my husband, if I remind myself, oh, everybody fights with their husband sometimes. Everybody gets stuck in their opinions of being right. Uh, you know what? You're tired. It's the end of a long day. You saw clients all day. You got nothing left. That's why you're not being super skillful in this communication right now. I'm practicing self-compassion. It'll allow me to be more psychologically flexible. And self-compassion is an outgrowth of being psychologically flexible. When you're psychologically flexible, you realize that we all make mistakes. We're all human. And we all have a chance to begin again. And, and that's, that's a nice, um, you know, gift of being psychologically flexible is to, to develop self-compassion. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you, this kind of just hit me when you were talking, do you think it's easier sometimes to practice this idea of self-compassion when we practice compassion for others first? Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because I think about, how, especially as a dad with two kids, I find it's a lot easier for me to be compassionate and uh, empathic with their experience when I see them struggling or having difficulty than it is for myself. I tend to be pretty hard on myself comparative to my kids. And I was thinking about like my, my flexibility for them seems, seems to be more broad. And sometimes my flexibility for myself tends to be a little bit more rigid and narrow. And so I didn't know if you came across any research or maybe your own kind of personal anecdotal experience uh, of if it makes sense, sometimes that one comes before the other. I don't know. I know it doesn't necessarily have to, but is that an, a natural evolution or progression that you see for a lot of people is making a connection with being compassionate for others and therefore it's translative to them? Well, there's different opinions on that. There's the contemplative practice opinion. There's the research opinion. But where I really like um, the concept of flow of compassion from uh, Gilbert which is there's three flows. You're talking about two of them and there's actually a third one there. So the first flow of compassion is you giving compassion to another, like your kids. 
The second flow is you giving compassion to yourself. And then the third flow is being able to receive compassion mm -hmm. from another. Mm -hmm. And what, what has been found is that people have, different people have different uh, capacities for those three flows. For some people, especially those in the helping profession, they're really good at giving compassion for others. But as soon as they're struggling, they're not calling their friends. They're not, they're like going in their little hiding hole, going to figure it out on their own, and then they'll come out again. They have a hard time receiving compassion for others, or maybe have a hard time giving compassion to themselves. And that's a, that's sort of an inner journey or examination of which one of these am I stronger at? Which one of these am I, is harder for me? And could I actually add to my practice? receiving compassion. Like if, if it's hard for you to receive compassion from others, then you could go about your day and you could give yourself some mini assignments. Like when I go into Trader Joe's and the guy asks me, how's your day going? I could actually have a conversation with them and, and receive the goodness of the Trader Joe's guy because they, they always seem to be in... <laughs> They do. They're, all, they're, always in, they're always in good mood. That's right. Good it makes me spend Hawaiian more shirts. money because I trust them. Yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. So I could actually, or I could take, or I could be on alert, you know, so that availability heuristic, I'm looking for right. moments where people are taking care of me and people are always taking care of you. You just don't see it all the time. We're all interconnected, sure. right? Sure. Or if I have a hard time giving compassion to others, I could give myself that assignment of when is a moment when, you know, I'm at a stop sign. And somebody does something annoying, and instead of giving them the finger, I'm just like, "Hey, I've been there too. I've done. I've been a bad driver in my life as well. Have a little compassion for somebody, just like me. We're we're, yeah. we're pretty much the same here. Yeah. So those are the three flows. And for some people, it's really helpful to start with something like like you said, like I can see what compassion feels like to my kids, and then therefore, if I know the quality of that feeling, maybe I could see myself as an eight year old child or a three year old child and give myself that compassion. I will say in terms of the research, Marcela Matos, who is out of Portugal, she did a fascinating study on fears of compassion during COVID. And what she found, and she looked at fears of these three areas, because we have fears. We have fears about being kind to ourselves. Things like, if I'm kind to myself, I'm going to lose my edge and let myself off the hook. Fears of being kind or compassionate to others. Things like if I'm compassionate to the person that ran the stop sign, then they're just going to keep on running stop signs all day, right? And then we have fears of receiving compassion, like the fear of if someone, if I let somebody in when I'm struggling, then I'm going to become dependent. And there's this whole assessment, the fears of compassion, compassion scale. You can just Google it and it's available openly. But Marcella Matos looked at folks over 21, she got 21 countries researchers to participate in this study, to look at fears of compassion during COVID. And what they found with over 4,000 participants was that folks that had greater fears of compassion fared a lot worse mental health-wise mm -hmm. during COVID. Greater mm -hmm. depression, greater anxiety, and lower feelings of social safeness. Like they didn't feel safe around others, right? So compassion is really important, especially when we're in situations of uncertainty, because if we feel like we care for ourselves and we can care for others and we can receive help, then we'll do a lot better when things fall apart. And it is helpful to look at which one of those flows are harder for me and how could I start to practice that flow in my daily life so it becomes stronger and it becomes a resource I can draw upon. I interviewed Marcella on uh, my podcast, Your Life in Process, and she gives a great um, little meditation in that interview of guiding us into developing that compassion itself, which was really helpful.
Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'll have to I'll have to make sure that I check that out. We'll link it in the show notes as well, because uh, I think that uh, again, what what you said resonated with me a lot, and I find that to be uh, a really fascinating study that that they've done. I think sometimes I've heard people at least say that this whole idea of self compassion, um, maybe we throw in the word also forgiveness at times, feels a little bit fluffy, and it doesn't feel mm-hmm. um, uh, it doesn't feel like it could be grounded or rooted in science. But what we know is that it drives behavior, it drives emotional and mental well being, and so it's interesting to kind of hear, especially for those who are maybe more science or data minded, to hear uh, that research really kind of uh, kind of confirm some of those things, um, especially as it relates to COVID, which was a very tough difficult time for a lot, a lot of people, if not everybody, you know, if I want to just lump us all into one thing. The one thing that I want to kind of, we've danced around it a little bit, but I want to kind of like ask more of a pointed question. And this is in regards to kind of this notion that we've been talking about uh, that that is psychological flexibility. And that is how does psychological flexibility, and maybe we just oppose that to its antithesis, which is rigidity or psychological rigidity. How does that impact things like anxiety or depression or like emotional mental health and well-being? Well, maybe the first, yeah, maybe the first question is how does psychological rigidity relate to depression and anxiety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, I, I think back I think maybe, to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe we we are kind of establishing that psychological flexibility is a protective factor against things like anxiety and, and depression. So maybe we can then unpack how psychological rigidity might lead down a pathway that enhances the experience of anxiety and depression. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephen Hayes has talked about psychological flexibility as a psychological vaccine, right? So the protective factor. Uh, so when you are experiencing anxiety and what they're finding about a lot of mental health struggles is that there's sort of a, um, there's some threads that show up, some themes that show up, one of which is experiential avoidance. So if you're depressed, if you wake up and you just feel like crap, you are not going to want to do certain things like get out of bed, take a shower, go for a walk, <laughs> you know, be around people, all the things that, I mean, these sound very basic, but this is the intervention for depression, behavioral activation, doing pleasurable things, savoring the good. You're not going to want to do any of that. And then you're going to have a narrative in your head about who you are and, you know, how terrible the future is and how you have zero capacity to change it, that that's going to happen too. So when you are psych, yeah, the inner dictator. So when you're psychologically rigid, the opposite of psychologically flexible, you're doing things like experientially avoiding discomfort. You're caught up in your self story about, and the story about the world and, and what the world is. You're believing your thoughts to be true. You're anywhere but the present and you've lost contact with what matters to you. Why would you want to get out of bed in the first place, mm. right? And what psychological flexibility does is it starts to unravel and give you alternatives to each one of those things. So psychological flexibility will help you notice, oh yeah, that's my depression thought or that's my anxiety thought. Whenever I go, whenever I have plans to go to a party, that anxiety thought shows up. It's an old one. I, o- I only have like maybe like 10 that seem to recycle themselves over and over and over again. And I, and, and I don't have to listen to that thought. I actually can do the opposite of what my head tells me. And there's other times when I've done that. So you get a little space from your thoughts. You also 
get a grander step back perspective. And this is the, the, the capacity to have perspective on yourself, but this is also where compassion comes in. Maybe have a compassionate perspective. Like if, if I, if I were an attuned parent coming into my depressed self this morning <laughs> in bed, what, what would that parent tell me? You know, like, like, and if it was a super kind parent, they'd say things like, okay, let's just get out of bed and let's just do the first thing. Let's just do the first thing. Let's like get in the shower. Right. And then psychological flexibility also really importantly reminds you that no matter what you can live out your values in this moment, no matter how crappy you feel, you have values, you have things that you care about, you have a way that you want to be in the world and you can do that in the here and now. Just like you can point your compass north, no matter where you are, and you can take a step towards north, you can live out your values. You know, so if you if you value being loving, you can practice that as you get out of bed and maybe you put on your shoes and take a loving walk, right? So psychological flexibility helps us with all of those rigid spots. And it applies to anxiety, it applies to depression, it applies to relationship stuff, it applies to procrastination, all the things that maybe um, keep us blocked from really living with wise effort in our lives and, and being the type of person that we want to be in the world. And it becomes less about symptom reduction and more about creating a life that is meaningful and fulfilling and rich. Mm. There's so much power to linking what you're doing or your behaviors with what matters to you, your values. And I, the, one of the things that drew me to act initially, because I was trained like many psychologists in a very much uh, CBT forward model. And obviously there were the third wave modalities like act and, you know, DBT, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that I had exposure to uh, as, uh, you know, as a trainee back in the day. But it wasn't until I came across act and really saw the component of values and how we can link that to what we do and why we do. And for me, there was so much just inherent power behind that. So my next question to you to kind of talk about and open up this concept of values how can we use values to increase motivation and sustain that change? Well, maybe a precursor to that is what are values? Because we get, we get a little tripped up. We think that values are the same things as morals, which is they're different than morals. They're, they're personally chosen. Uh, we think that values are, are um, some place to get to, right? Some destination, but really they're qualities that we bring to our action. So values are things like being present, uh, being curious, being kind, being adventurous, being humorous, uh, being uh, inquisitive. So our values are qualities that we bring to whatever important domain of our life. Sometimes people will say things when I work with them on their values, like I value my health or I value my relationships. And I would say those are domains within which you live out your values. How do you want to be in relationship to your health? So how do we use values as, as motivators? Uh, one, one way to do it is to become attuned to what brings you vitality in certain domains of your life. And the, the inherent nature of values is that when you are engaging with your values, you will feel a, a natural sort of upwelling of energy and vitality because you're living in alignment with the type of person you want to be in the world. And so when I'm um, 
when I'm talking, I was just working with a, um, a client who's an older client who's been working for a long time with me on, uh, on health behavior stuff, trying to get him into uh, walking more out in, in, um, in the world. And one of the things that I asked him about is, okay, well, tell me about a time when you felt like you were living in alignment with your values around caring for your physical health. And he shared about hiking in the mountains with his friends when he was 20. This guy's like 70 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. was that like? What were you doing? How were you engaging? Well, I was with friends. I was in nature. I was um, taking, we were kind of like taking this sort of adventurous road trip. So we're starting to get to the surface here. Here are some values for him of how he wants to be in relationship to his movement. And that becomes the motivator instead of the motivator being 10,000 steps. Mm -hmm. The motivator is when I'm engaging in my physical health behavior, I'm doing it with people, I'm doing it in nature, and I'm doing it in sort of this adventurous kind of creative way. Now, it's different now when he's 70 than when he was 20, but he can still live out those values in his 70s. So that's that's the difference. It it has uh, much more of a... um, creative, flexible quality to it than extrinsic motivators, which are just, you know, you get the gold star or you get the weight loss or you hit the mark. But what happens on the days when you don't hit that mark, you know, the, 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 when intrinsic reward isn't there, you will always have an intrinsic reward. It's always available to you. Yeah. The, if you simply have the extrinsic reward as the quote unquote primary motivator, you are destined to fall short at some time. You might have a string of, you know, a week, two weeks, months, maybe even a couple of years where you meet kind of that, let's say that check mark goal. Uh, but then when you don't, and then that time inevitably happens, uh, then again, we kind of come back to this idea of guilt and shame and feeling like, oh, now things are unraveling because, you know, I didn't meet kind of my quota for the day, or I was, I'm not able to check off this box that I've been able to check off for so many times. But you're saying like, if we are able to, instead of look simply at these extrinsic goals, these check boxes on the to-do list, and instead link them and tie them with our value system, then that is a much more robust means of motivating us to sustain change and continue engaging in the behavior that we are uh, because of uh, just, again, the robust robustness of it. Where does one start if someone's having kind of like a hard time saying, like, I don't know, like what my values are, maybe they say, like, if you would ask me that question, I would say, you know, it is my health, or it is my, you know, kids, or it is my, you know, fill in the blank. Um, but what you indicated is uh, some kind of notions like, you know, being present um, uh, can be more like a value. Where might someone start if they're like, I don't really know kind of how to assess my my values? Well, one question would be in that domain. So I would have I would have you start with picking a domain, right? So your domain of work. If I were to videotape you at work today, and you were to play back that video, and you were to circle like the like uh, edit out like the five minute segment that mm-hmm. shows you at your best how you want to be at work, what would you be doing? How would you be acting? What would I see as your facial expression? What would, what would I see you behaviorally? Like what qualities behaviorally would I be able to point out in you? And then if I were to highlight you when you're totally out of alignment, when you're like a guitar that is out of tune, what would that sound like and look like? Right? Because in mm-hmm. our day, we're all going to have that. 
right? And it's not that we're a better person when we're living out our values and we're a worse person when we're not. It's just what like we are like guitars. If my son's a guitarist, if he just leaves his guitar in his room for a couple of days, it gets out of tune and it needs a tune up. So we all need tune ups, but we have to know what am I tuning to? Mm-hmm. And and that's the musician's ear, right? So your musician's ear is is knowing and, and being able to point out, yeah, that's me. When I when I for me at work, I'm a therapist, so I sit with people, right? I know when I had a session, when I was on, I was engaged, I wasn't thinking in my head, I was leaning in, I was doing something experiential that's kind of uncomfortable, like switching seats or getting out, you know, different uh, movement in our therapy trying out a new skill that I haven't tried before. That's me living out my values of learning and growing and being experiential and being present in the therapy room. And for somebody else, living out their values at work may be something totally different. Mm. So that's one way to look at it is you can, you already are doing it. Just maybe you need a little bit of a refinement of, of, of looking at what is it that you're doing. And then you start to make those be some of your goals. So for example, for me as a therapist, if one of my values is to be more experiential, instead of just talking about stuff, do it with my clients, right? Then I may make that a goal of, okay, with this client and this client and this client today, I'm going to practice experiential exercises. And when I practice that, I'm strengthening that value of being experiential with my clients. Mm, I like that. It's it, you, you take out the 30,000 foot view and then you start to pull it in more and more and more so that we become more uh, granular and have more of a high fidelity perspective. And I like that because for me, yeah, it might just be that I identify, well, yeah, you know, it, it is work or it is relationships that are kind of like the core values and, and bring me a sense of meaning and purpose. And it's not that that's not true, but what we want to do is take a little bit more of a microscopic view of it. And I like the way you put it. And I'm going to start to kind of bring this into my own routine as well and kind of talking about, well, you know, what does a time look like where things are kind of really full steam ahead, working really well, and then kind of let's let's look at the opposite of that. And what are the differences between the two and identify on, on those key components or qualities. And uh, I think that can be really helpful for people. So I appreciate you sharing that. And there, there's a concept that we haven't talked about yet, but I know that you talk about this on your podcast. You've written about this, uh, you know, a lot in your book. And I'll, and I'll mention a lot too about your daily journal, which is highly useful and I really love it as well. Um, but the the concept is, is is acceptance. And obviously in ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, it is a, a, a core process. But why do you believe acceptance is the most important skill when it comes to change? I don't know if I believe it's the most important. <laughs> oh, I just, all, all I did was pull what you said you wanted to talk about. And you indicated important? it was the oh, most boy. important. <laughs> Revise. Uh, it's a, extremely important. Sometimes the most gotcha. important skill in terms of change is, is actually making the change. Sure. So, with, <laughs> right. so within context, uh, yeah. acceptance within context, can be. Maybe I, it was. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, acceptance. It, acceptance is... And maybe it is the most important skill because acceptance is acknowledging what is. And it's not necessarily approving of or liking or uh, saying that it's okay that somebody did you wrong or that, you know, that you have cancer or whatever it is. But acceptance is acknowledging and opening to the reality of your life as it is, as opposed to fighting it. And when you are fighting something, if you can imagine like whatever it is you are gripping and fighting and don't like is in the palm of your hand and you're gripping and your hand is turned over and you're like, it's like sand that you're trying to not let escape. 
all your energy is going into fighting that thing. And your hand is not available for you to make a change because it's resisting, right? But if you imagine you could turn your hand over and you could open up your palm and still allow that thing that you don't like to be in the palm of your hand, but allow your hand to just be open and relaxed, then you can use your energy for other things. And maybe you could even use your hand for for some other things as well. So when we're in non-acceptance, we use a lot of energy fighting that which we aren't accepting. We also can have the rebound effect of that which we are fighting gets stronger, you know, that emotion, that thought, uh, that feeling, because we're trying to push it down or away. And when we practice acceptance, it opens us up to actually make the changes that we want to make in our life. I need to accept that I have, um, you know, for me, I have a physical, I have scoliosis. So my, my spine is crooked and I need to accept that in order to get into different positions to support my spine while I sit a lot of my day, right? Mm-hmm. I need to accept that um, this, this person at work is a challenging person to work with and be able to even accept my own irritability and open to my own irritability around them so that I can act from a place that is wise and confident and clear as opposed to just acting from like a bratty place or an irritated place. I'll be more effective if I if I practice acceptance. Mm. So when we practice acceptance around, usually it's stuff underneath our skin, then mm. it allows us to be more effective in the world outside of our skin. Would you say the antithesis of acceptance is avoidance? Yes. Yes. Experiential avoidance. Experiential avoidance. And, and I would say uh, sometimes it also can be experiential attachment. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Attachment? Experiential attachment is uh, when we grab onto or we cling onto something that we want. And uh, we don't accept that that it either isn't a possible or that our clinging onto it uh, is making us suffer more. Right. So we can get attached to all sorts of things. We can get attached to numbers like uh, followers. We can get attached to some kind of identity. I am this. I am not that. I, you know, we can get attached to our physical appearance. We can get attached to all sorts of things. And in the same way that when we're gripping something to try and not let ourselves feel it, we can grip onto things that we like and and that we don't want to let go of. We can get attached to our relationships, right? And sometimes acceptance is letting go. It's giving up. It's saying, this isn't working for me. And, and that, that can also be um, really f- incredibly freeing. There's a lot of things that I've quit, that I've given up, that I've let go of in my life. And when I've done that, it has freed me to be creative and to grow and to look at other paths that I didn't think were possible. So acceptance can also be the opposite of experiential attachment, just like it's the opposite mm. of experiential avoidance. It makes sense. The one thing that I think tends to happen a lot with this word acceptance is that people become confused with its definition. And a lot of the times I have gotten the feedback that people will, or at least they'll ask the question, they'll say, so does acceptance mean that we just kind of like throw up the hands and whatever situation or circumstance you're in, it's like, we just accept it. It is what it is type thing. So I think a lot of people would say, okay, so if someone's in, let's say like a really uh, difficult home situation where there's domestic violence, should I just accept and say, yep, throw up the hands. I just allow it to happen. Obviously that's not what we're 
we're talking about here in terms of acceptance, but maybe we could talk about someone who is kind of thinking like, is that what you mean when you say acceptance? Um, maybe we can talk about why that isn't the case and maybe more refined, like what truly is the meaning of this word acceptance, especially for someone that's enduring really significant, horrible pain like that. Yeah. Well, I think the domestic violence one is a perfect one because in order to get out of a domestic violence situation, we need to accept that domestic violence is happening. And actually non-acceptance would be denial or non-acceptance would be staying because that would be just sort of like, I'm just not going to think about that. I just, I'm just, I can't, I can't deal with that. Right. So acceptance does not mean allowing for harm or oppression, or being passive, or not taking action, or not speaking up. Acceptance often, and this is, I, I love um, Kristen Neff's concept of fierce compassion. Sometimes acceptance means I'm, I'm, I am fully accepting what is happening here. And because I'm fully accepting, I am leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am quitting. I am, you know, whatever the, the, the harmful, toxic situation that I am in. And Acceptance, I would say in ACT, in the if you're a purist, if you're an ACT purist, we're more talking about acceptance of the sensations, the emotions, the thoughts that are showing up under your skin. So can I accept my feeling of anxiety as I ask my boss for a raise, right? Or can I accept my feeling of vulnerability or... Um, you know, sort of like that, that the vulnerable feeling of intimacy as I pursue the next step in this relationship, right? So that's acceptance. I'm accepting what's showing up under my skin in order to pursue that which I care about, in order to live out my values. That's very different than saying, I'm just, you know, it is what it is. I can't do anything about it. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. It's, a great distinction because I think that some people, they just simply hear the word without uh, maybe fully understanding its context. And they can think, my goodness, like that just feels like I throw up my hands and just allow things to happen. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily healthy. And what you're saying, um, and, and, I, and I'm glad we kind of clarified it all here is it's, it's not that. Um, it's more of an acceptance of the experience, not as one that we throw our hands up and say, like, I'll, I'll, I'll never be able to get out of it. It's more of an acceptance of saying like these, I identify, I'm aware, I'm self-aware that the, this is my experience. And my experience may be one of pain and suffering and difficulty, but it can be that driver that says, well, I'm not accepting the situation that I must stay in it, but I'm accepting that this is what I'm experiencing right now. And that can be a primary uh, motivator uh, for, for change. So I appreciate you 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 uh, clarifying that one. One that happens a lot, I think, for people um, in terms of hearing that word acceptance is kind of like hearing the internal dictator or dialogue that we were talking about earlier. And a lot of people say, well, then should I just accept my my inner dictator kind of going off on me and telling me I'm worthless and things are never going to get better and I'll never be happy and all of these, this other junk that I hear from that. How does acceptance play into that? And maybe it's an opportunity for us to also open up the conversation just regarding cognition and thoughts and, you know, the concept of cognitive diffusion, which I, I would love to hear your definition of. So let's kind of put all those pieces together. So, Cognitive diffusion is your ability to see that you are not your thoughts and also accept that you have thoughts. 
and you will continue to have thoughts. Some of those thoughts are not even yours. They came from your parents. They came from some media message. They, came, who knows where they came from, right? They're just sort of floating around in in your mind, and just like your eyes see and your nose smells and your mouth tastes, your brain, your mind is constantly producing thought. So with cognitive diffusion, we we give up the 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 battle with our minds or even think that sometimes I'll, uh, I'll go to like a yoga class and, and the yoga teacher will say things like, okay, class for the next five minutes, just stop thinking, just clear your mind. Good. good <laughs> I'm luck. like, Oh, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> good luck. And now I feel like a crappy yoga practitioner. Cause I wasn't able to do that. Right. right. And right. so cognitive diffusion is like, thank goodness. You don't have to do that. You, and, and you're not a crappy meditator if you cannot do that. Instead, what you can do is you can be the space that holds all those thoughts, like the sky that holds the weather, and you can just notice it go by. And some thoughts uh, may be really helpful to you. They may be super motivating. They may be really compassionate. They may be aligned with your values. As we're having this interview, I've had all sorts of thoughts. I had, I was just having a thought. I, I want to go for a run after this. You should see what I'm wearing. I'm like, I'm wearing my, my business on top and then I'm wearing my tennis shoes go. on the bottom. <laughs> I love it. I told so my kids this. I'm I like, I'm like all business on, on top, <laughs> all running on the bottom so I can go for a run. And right. so I just had that thought, Ooh, am I going to get my run in? That is not a helpful thought. See, and now my inner dictator is saying she's telling you to get this interview over (laughs) so that she can get out there and run. (laughs) I just have to run faster. That's the only thing. That's it. Okay, Uh, well, it's good. See, I'm acting as a a behavioral motivator there. Yeah, exactly. So, So here's the thing. Our mind will do that. It'll have these like interrupted thoughts. Like I, I lost my, my, my train of thought while I was thinking about running. So what I did, here's what I did. Oh, I noticed that thought, let it go, get back, get back to here. I'll deal with whether I run or how long I run or whatever that run is when I'm done with what I'm doing here. Right. And so, so that's the practice as you become an observer of your thoughts and, and you can choose, you know, some thoughts may be really helpful and you choose to water those seeds. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh often talks about watering the seeds of our mind. Like we have this whole garden, we have weeds, we have seeds. What do we do with the weeds? We don't sit there and like, you know, round up them all day, right? Instead, we water the seeds that we want to grow and let this, let the weeds do what they do what they do. But um, it is a practice and you don't have to be a meditator to learn how to practice cognitive diffusion. You can just do it in your day where you become an observer of your thoughts. You're like, oh, notice that thought. Thank you, mind. I don't, you know, it's not helpful for me right now. And then Mm -hmm. reorient to the present, to the present. Is it potentially harmful then to try to identify thoughts that aren't helpful and then replace them with more positive thoughts or strive to think happy thoughts? And I ask you that because I, you know, some of the pop culture uh, and pop psychology here will just replace it with a more positive thought or just replace it uh, with a more happy thought. Why, why would we not do that necessarily? Well, if you notice that when you try and replace a thought with a happy thought, there's another part of you that doesn't really believe it <laughs> and that right. battles back. Yes, the, but. The de- you know, devil like, on one shoulder, the angel on the yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, you know, it, it can it can have that rebound effect where sure. if you're if you're trying to make something positive, then the other part of you will argue all the negative and then you're just in that, you know, debate 
You're right. in an inner debate, which is another poor use of your energy. Uh, you know, it, the research doesn't really support that affirmations are beneficial hmm. as much as we want them to be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and what the research supports is actually, you know, yes, actually developing a compassionate mind or compassionate thoughts can be helpful. That's different than toxic positivity. So a compassionate mind or compassionate thoughts is just a more flexible mind, a more open mind, a more present mind, a kinder mind. Battling your thoughts with uh, replacing thoughts is a little bit different. There is some, and, and I would say ACT is becoming, has become more flexible over the years. Back in the day when I learned ACT like 15 years ago, we were like, you know, anti, like get rid of all the CBT stuff that we learned. Right. But there is, there is some benefit to some folks to do things like reframe your thoughts. Uh, you know, is there another way you could think about this? Is there evidence for that? There, there can be some benefit for people, but for a lot of people, the, their, pro, their, their problem is they're too much in their head in the first place. Hmm. And so if you're using a heady solution for a heady problem, it's just going to create more headiness. And for those folks, I find it really helpful to be like, okay, and then what, what are you going to do <laughs> with your body, with your hands and your feet? How, wh what's in your heart that's guiding this? What are you going back to that one eye out and what eye in? What are you feeling right now in this moment? Sensations, physical sensations, yearnings, longings, uh, needs that you have inside of you. That may be more helpful than just, you know, battling out your thoughts. Yeah. Well, really well stated. I like the idea that you mentioned people who are really cerebral or in their head, when you start to have them kind of analyze their thoughts and, you know, kind of the old traditional CBT way was to keep a thought record and, and kind of carry that around with you. I feel like uh, for many cerebral individuals that really irritates them. And I'm one of those people because I tend to be rather cerebral. And so when I was studying and doing thought records um, for me, I'm always like, this actually works for other people because it really doesn't work for me very well because I just, I start thinking too much about it. And then it's just, it's the constant cycle. It's a loop, 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 loop. So I appreciate kind of your mentioning of that. I also want to mention that I, I talked with a fair amount of, of people who are within the ACT community, and it can feel a little bit like we're doing this with the, with the mm -hmm. CBT crew. And I really appreciate kind of your openness to saying, no, there's actually really good kind of high quality skills that we can take from there and blend them together with this approach. We don't have to be so dogmatic and, you know, in, in one camp or, an, or another. So I just wanted to lay that out there because I've had maybe some people on the podcast who that hasn't been as clear and it's felt a little bit more kind of like headbutting. So I appreciate your willingness to be more flexible on that side well, of things. I'm also on the edge of moving more and more towards process-based approaches. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why my podcast is called Your Life in Process, because process-based approaches are a bigger umbrella under which welcomes all different perspectives. It, it welcomes gestalt. It welcomes... Um, IFS, it welcomes, uh, you know, schema therapies, looking at what are the underlying processes that contribute to human flourishing. And ACT has one model, but there's lots of models that can get you there. And right now I'm working on a project with um, Joseph Sorochi on starting to do what we kind of did with ACT, which is take this kind of complicated concept of process-based therapy and make it super applied and tangible for the general public to be able to use. 
But that's where it's like getting into camps of one psychology perspective fighting with another psychology perspective is super not helpful. A lot of times you can look at there's under, you know, even when I talk about reframing thoughts, that is in some ways you could say that is a perspective taking process, Mm -hmm. right? You're, Mm -hmm. you're reframing, you're, you're looking at something from a different angle and that's done in, in CBT, but it's a process that's done in a lots of other types of approaches as well. Yeah, I love it. Well, I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. And, and and I appreciate kind of, again, all the wisdom that you brought to this podcast today. So thanks so much. Just want to kind of plug also to, you know, the way I found out about you was uh, finding this guy right here, which is the ACT Daily Journal, uh, which you wrote uh, with with uh, Dr. Sorensen. And so maybe we could just spend, uh, you know, just a few seconds telling people a little bit about this. I've, I've already gone through um, every single day. You can see it all, all, all filled out as I, as I turn the pages. Uh, But it's been a really wonderful way. Like for me, I've always done gratitude journaling. um, But there was always kind of, it's a little bit myopic gratitude journaling. And you know, again, sometimes I enjoy the process. Sometimes I'm like, kind of doing the same thing over and over again. If I have like a a manual gratitude journal, this is not a gratitude journal. Um, And so maybe you could explain why it's not a gratitude journal and what it is, because you'll do a better job because you wrote the, you wrote the damn thing. So if I try to do it, uh, I might not do it justice. First, we battled our publishers to not call it a journal. Uh, Uh, Because there's so much, we just wanted to call it Act Daily uh, because there's so much content in it. And a lot of journals that you buy are just like a lot of empty space, right? Yeah, this has yeah. actually a, a ton of content that walks you through each of the six processes of psychological flexibility. And so you spend a week on each or however long your week could be a month. Again, get flexible with it. You don't have to do one, you know, one every single day. But we go through like the concept of acceptance and, and how we break it down into what is acceptance and how you would apply it in your life. And we draw, we have cite a lot of research, which you wouldn't see in journals. Yeah, <laughs> and, yes. and then we give a lot of space. We give you tangible stuff for you to do that day, but also space for you to explore that process as it applies to you. And one of my values in my work is to bring these concepts of evidence-based psychology to the general public in a way that is digestible without watering it down, but also making it applicable and applies so it actually can be used to improve your life because there's so much good research out there but then it it stops at being out there either you have to be in therapy to do it or you have to find the right therapist to do it and and then I also want to I want to be human in it so Debbie and I share little vignettes little stories about us of you know things that we're doing in our in our lives and that's always the way that I teach is sharing you know personal stories so it's a fun, it's a, it was a fun project. We have a card deck now that goes with it, oh, which nice. is kind of fun. And I, I'm going to be coming out with a self-compassion journal that does the same thing with, and I, again, battled because I wanted to call it the compassion journal, but they wanted me to call it the self-compassion journal because I really do uh, see it as a flow. Yeah. And that's coming out in um, uh, May of 2024. Very but nice. this this idea of, yeah, let's take what we know from evidence-based psychology and let's make it applied and let's actually do it in our lives and see the benefit, not only for us, but to benefit the people around us. And when we apply psychological flexibility, not only do we live better lives, but the people, let me tell you, your, your partner, your kids, <laughs> the people at work will uh, get to that benefit as well. 
Yeah. Excellent. Well, anybody who wants to pick it up, I mean, again, uh, I know I got mine off Amazon. Uh, there's probably, do you guys sell it from like your website or is Amazon just the best Yeah. If you, if you get it off my website, which is drdianahill.com, I have some freebies and actually one freebie is a a course on self-compassion, a little oh, mini course, awesome. or actually no, of course I, I on bought compassion. It, I bought it in the wrong place. I should have bought it. Yeah. You got to go, website. you got to go from the author website and then there you, you get the freebie stuff. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Excellent. Well, again, Dr. Hill, thanks so much for joining us today on the Hanu Health Podcast. Uh, you've been uh, just a, a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and so many just nuggets that people can take and implement in their everyday. So again, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks. I got to go get, get on my run now. There you go. <laughs> Give me enough time. <laughs> we won't hold you any longer. All right. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. This show would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us to reach others and share our knowledge and expertise on improving mental wellness. If you're interested in working with one of our therapists or using our platform, head on over to HanuHealth.com or reach out to us at info at Tune in next time and have a wonderful week.